Hello and welcome to another episode of the Motherkind podcast with me, your host, Zoe Busky. This week is Mental Health Awareness Week in the UK. So I've thought long and hard about who would be really amazing to chat to this week. And I am talking to the incredible Michelle Cottle, who writes the really popular blog and Instagram account called Dear Orla. So Michelle is a psychologist, she's a clinical psychologist, but that's not what we talk about on this episode. Michelle has an incredibly sad story to share with us on this episode, which is about baby loss, a really tricky subject, but one that I feel really passionate about sharing and talking about. And Michelle talks about losing Orla, her baby at 37 weeks with such bravery and honesty and wisdom and vulnerability that I challenge you not to cry through this podcast. It's beautiful and Michelle is an incredible woman and it really was an honour to spend the time that I did with her talking about this incredibly important subject. So we talk a lot about Orla and about baby loss. We also talk about postnatal depression, which is again why I wanted to put this out on Mental Health Awareness Week because Michelle suffered with postnatal depression with her second baby, Esme. Being able to say, do you know what, it's very, very hard. Those mm. first few weeks, months, I felt very, very dark. It was hard. And all I can hope for you is that you have people around you and systems and support around you and that you feel able to use that. She also shares about how she started her blog what she's doing with it, the amazing impact that she's had with working with charities like Tommy's and the other initiatives that she shares with us. That's a bit of me sort of trying to sort of think about, okay, how as a psychologist can I blog? How as a psychologist can I share my personal experiences of distress and pain and mental health difficulties and recovery and all of those sorts of things? So this episode is a really special one. It felt really special whilst I was recording it and I really hope that it touches your heart as much as it touched mine. So here it is. So Michelle, welcome to the Motherkind podcast. I am so happy to be here with you. Thank you very much for having me. It's really nice to have an opportunity, I think, to talk through everything that we've been going through. Mm, Well, I feel a real... A mix of emotion actually I feel partly really excited to be having this conversation because I think it's really important that we break the silence around baby loss and help educate mm. people how to deal with it themselves or deal mm. with it with their friends and family but I also feel nervous of that I might say the wrong thing or I might not treat it with the tenderness or that I might offend is that quite a normal response that people want to talk about it but have this sort of slight nervousness yeah. about saying the wrong thing. Absolutely. I think it's, yeah, it's one of those things that people, you do not know what to say because, I mean, it's just one of the most horrendous things I think that you can imagine someone going through. Mm. So there isn't really the language or the words or the right thing to do or the right thing to say. And I think also everyone's just so individual that actually what I might like and what I might take offence to or not take offence to might be really different to someone else so I think it's just a really tricky situation and I think the thing that's really hard though is that as someone who has been on the receiving end of people feeling uncomfortable 
I tend to sort of maybe overcompensate or try and make them feel comfortable. And then it's just a bit of a vicious cycle, I think, because then you feel exhausted by it and the other yeah, person and it's not about awkward. them they're mentally supporting you <laughs> it's yeah it's a really it's just a tricky situation I don't think there's any kind of right or wrong but I think what you did was really helpful is just saying actually I'm worried about saying the wrong thing and almost kind of giving me permission to say actually when you say that that's a bit kind of I'm not sure you won't say anything offensive, but do you know what I mean? Like, it, I don't know, it just opens up that conversation. Yeah, but if I did, I would really want you to say that because then I would think, because having never been through it, I can't imagine, you know, what your mm. internal experience might be or how I might say a word or something that might be triggering or inappropriate. And yeah. I guess if you were able to say that to me, then I might know the next person that I talk to, you know, what I was saying before we started, I do have a friend who's been through what you've yeah. been through. So I think it's that education piece and, and not being afraid to have those courageous conversations which absolutely so often we sort of want to avoid don't we exactly I mean it's human nature isn't it we don't like awkwardness we don't like uncomfortableness and we don't like the thought that we're going to offend someone yeah and I think it's being open and receptive to feedback is really the important thing is being able to tolerate when someone says actually that's really unhelpful when you say that or when you did this I felt really hurt it's funny though because sometimes I think Obviously, people contact me through the blog and Instagram. And sometimes even I might feel a bit like, oh, actually, what should I say in that situation? Because everyone's situation is slightly different. So I I don't know. I don't think it's unique to whether you've been through loss or you haven't. I still find myself really just really pondering over what should I say in response? Because, you know, maybe that person has been through multiple losses or struggled with fertility issues before they had their loss or after and you know actually that might be very different from my experience and I've become very aware that I don't want to minimize what people are going through but also kind of say something that's quite invalidating or dismissive it would be really easy for me to say oh it's okay you're going to be okay and this is going to happen and you will get your rainbow baby because actually I don't know I don't know what people's futures hold and and I definitely found that difficult when I was pregnant with Esme was you know people sort of they've got their sort of you know crystal ball that they could say it's going to be okay this time I didn't know that and actually they didn't know that no one knew that until she was out and screaming and breathing you know I didn't know so I think that this is a really common experience and it's not you're so right it's not just about baby loss you know this conversation we're going to talk about that a lot and I want you to talk about all and we're going to go through your story but I think this idea of having these courageous conversations you know death of a parent Mm. cancer there's so many things that actually we don't have the words or the language and I love what you're saying around people almost like comes from such a good place doesn't it but that Mm. sort of platitude of saying you're going to be fine yeah because that's what everyone hopes yeah because actually what you're saying is this is what I really want for For you you. yeah it comes from such a good place it does but it is so it's just very frustrating and and I'm very aware that I don't want to try and sort of project that my journey to bringing home a baby will be the same as anyone else's because there's no guarantees like no one knows what the future holds and some Mm. people go through tremendous amount before they get a take-home so baby. what do you say then when people we're going to get into your story but what do you say when people message you through instagram who are going through the same thing i think what i try to do is just try and validate the emotion and yep. kind of sit with 
what they're kind of and you're we should probably say you know the reason that you sound so emotionally (laughs) and you've got all the lexicon around this because you are a trained psychologist i am yeah i'm a yeah i'm a clinical psychologist and that's it my you know the bread and butter of what i do is working with emotion working with distress and trauma and i mean really all of my jobs have been on the more extreme end of mental health difficulties really sort of severe mental health difficulties and severe trauma and people who've gone through untold abuse and you know mm-hmm. horrific things so I'm very professionally equipped I guess to sort of deal with those things but it's odd being in a sort of slightly removed situation where people are sort of talking to you more as a peer it's I'm not there as a psychologist people are contacting me because I am I'm one of them I'm I'm a person who's been through something horrific who has shared it I just think it's just so important just to sit with that where they're at currently and often it'll be people who are very recent raw in their loss who are saying I just cannot see light I can't see that that I'm going to be happy again or that things are going to be different and rather than sort of saying oh it's definitely going to be being able to say do you know what it's very very hard those Mm. first few weeks months I felt very very dark it was hard and all I can hope for you is that you have people around you and systems and support around you and that you feel able to use that that sounds like a really validating because I feel like that's all you can do it's all you is can just do. validate yeah and that's just say so you're not you're and not that's alone. why I think what you've done is so powerful because that validation if you know if I'd have said that to someone it doesn't mean the same because I haven't been through it and I think that's yeah. the power of what you've done and maybe now would be a good time to maybe talk about your journey actually Maybe you should just share your journey. Mm. So how did you get to where you are now? So I, I mean, sort of really rewinding a couple of years, Mm. three years now, I think, we tried for a baby and I fell pregnant, you know, after a few months and I actually had an early loss. I had an ectopic pregnancy, which is kind of, that's something that's not really spoken a lot about, I feel, because it's actually a very traumatic loss in that you are suddenly, well, I certainly be, suddenly became very unwell and had to be rushed in for emergency surgery. Is um, that when the baby's in the fallopian tube? Yeah, well, yeah. it's developing outside of the uterus. Oh my gosh. Um, this one was developing in my left tube. And, I mean, I didn't know I was pregnant. How many weeks were you? I think... It's tricky to date it, actually, because everything was... You know, I still had a period. It was odd. That's why I just didn't know I was pregnant. So probably about seven weeks, seven weeks or so, six, seven weeks. Very unwell. It ruptured. I've never been in so much pain. Gosh. And had surgery, lost a tube. And that was just... It was very... Well, that isn't talked about, isn't it? I didn't know any of that. Is that quite standard with the... Not everyone. If it's caught early enough, then there are... There's lots of different options. I think there's, like, a drug treatment where you might be able to kind of shift things but no like for me it was too late and there wasn't really any other option so they went in did the surgery and removed a tube and it was dealt with in a very kind of very matter of fact very medical way it's like you know you're okay now you're alive things are okay and you sort of sent on your merry way and so you know you can go back to work in a few days so that was kind of my first experience of loss and I dealt with it in a very I suppose matter of fact way as well and just kind of carried on and tried for another baby and fell pregnant again we were really lucky to fall pregnant again a few months later considering that I only actually had one tube yeah and that was in 2015 and yep healthy happy pregnancy very anxious at the beginning because I thought oh gosh you know if this happens again I lose another tube that's it I'm kind of well I don't know what the options are then but actually then you got through the initial trimester lots of scans and then had a very healthy smooth pregnancy 
no problems at all. And then at 37 weeks, the weekends that I turned 37 weeks kind of just didn't feel right. On reflection, I look back and know that probably movements had changed, but I didn't really understand the importance of baby movement. Did you know instinctually something didn't feel right? Yeah. It's weird. And is that in hindsight or did you know in the moment? No, I just knew I didn't feel right. I cried a lot that weekend. I felt very anxious. Do you think your body knew before your mind knew? Yeah, there was definitely something going on. I felt, I just knew something wasn't right, but I just, there wasn't anything in particular that I could sort of attach it to that I'd need to go in and see. Because the first time you go through it, I really relate to this. You just don't, you don't don't know, know, do you? You don't know what's normal, what to expect, what not to expect. So in the end, I just kind of got progressively more and more anxious. Went into, uh, it was Sunday night, went into hospital to, you know, just for a check over. And they, you know, they did their sort of checks, but I very, very quickly became aware that something wasn't right because they were trying with various different machines to pick up a heartbeat and couldn't. And I could see the midwife getting a bit flustered and going out and coming in. And like, I don't know, my heart knew before they said anything, I knew. And the doctor came in with a, an ultrasound monitor and, you know, and scanned and just said, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry your, your baby has died. I don't even think she said that because I'd looked at the screen and I saw that there wasn't a heartbeat. So I just sort of turned away because I just thought I can't, I don't want this to be real. And I suppose I didn't want this to be my lasting memory of, of her as just seeing this sort of still screen. So that was on the day that I turned full term and suddenly there was like this kind of big flurry of action and there's loads of midwives and doctors in the room and like looking back I just think gosh it's a really bad way to deal with I was going to say were you what emotional support at this moment were you given was Andy there obviously Andy was there yeah he was there he's going through his own yeah yeah you it was just bonkers and it almost felt like it became a medical emergency and actually I, I was mean, it? it wasn't no no I mean I know people who go you know a couple of days before they go for an induction so it's to, not to a medical process. emergency yeah wow but for me it was just like okay well you've got to go home now pack a bag come straight back in you're going to be induced tonight that's it and obviously I was like I just I, can't you just start giving me a cesarean or because I think a lot of people don't realize this I didn't to like you know been following your story yeah. over the, you know the years but is that you had to give birth yeah and I mean it's funny like I kind of look back and think oh if I'd pushed and pushed would they have given me a cesarean is that um, what you wanted at that moment I mean I wanted to be put to sleep and never yeah, wake well, up God, like, I just can't imagine it was that's yeah you just you just can't imagine going through something that you've been so looking forward to knowing what the outcome's going to be it just felt like a really cruel and painful reality that people were saying you have to do this and there was a lots of I suppose medical reasons for it that yeah actually it's better for you to give birth vaginally for having future children you know that's kind of better for you because a c-section is a major operation so yeah I could understand that stuff but to me that didn't matter like there was no way I was going to go through this again I was you know I, I couldn't imagine putting myself through this again so that was not on my agenda in that moment but actually on reflection I'm you know I'm very glad that I did give birth mm. to all it was a I mean, it was an intense long process but I am very proud of it but yeah that was the Sunday night and she was born on the Tuesday morning and it's um Sorry, I still get really tearful when I think about it because it's just such an intense experience to 
to go through. I just remember being in labour saying to my midwife, what happens if she comes out and I don't love her? Because there's this fear that, you know, because what happens if I don't because she's already died? Um, and she was like, no, you will, you will. And then I said, what happens if I love her too much? What happens if I love her so much that I can't say goodbye? And I just remember that being such an intense fear that, you know, that either way I was going to break. Either way, if I didn't love her, that would be just such a horrific thing to go through. Or I would love her so much that, yeah, that I, I literally on that in that moment would die. Um, so, yeah, it was... It's just such an intense thing. And actually, you know, when she was there, it was very, oddly, very calm. She, it was, I mean, it was, it was quiet. She was silent. But there was just this odd sereneness of her arriving and us kind of going, okay, we've got this beautiful baby. And she, she was tiny and um, just perfectly formed. But that knowing that we would be leaving without her. So we spent that day in hospital with her and left in the evening. Did you have some time alone with her? Yeah, so we have, we were put in a, a side room and it's a real shame actually because at that time the hospital didn't have any cuddle cots, so cooling cots, so they sort of preserve bodies for longer. And obviously without that in a hospital which is hotter than the sun, the time that you really can spend with babies not it's tricky because obviously they, they kind of deteriorate quite quickly. So we'd spent as long as we could and, and actually we got to a point where like, actually I think it's time for us to go. And that was sort of like the first of a few goodbyes that we had with her because we went to see her again at the funeral home quite a few times actually. And then we had her funeral, I think it was three weeks later. It was, yeah, her funeral was the day after her due date. So it was just over three weeks later. Gosh. Yeah. So we're coming up to the two-year anniversary now. So I'm just thinking today, actually, I think it's two years since my baby shower. So I'm coming into this period of time of just... These dates. Yeah, anniversary after anniversary after anniversary. It's a very intense time that people who've not gone through any form of loss wouldn't necessarily understand that it's not just the day that we found out that she died or the day that she was born. It's such a collection of, of things. But, yeah, and that was in May 2016... And we were lucky enough that we did get pregnant again three months later. I mean, we were advised not to try for three, three months. months later. Yeah. And we were lucky that that first month that we tried, we conceived Esme, which just felt like a kind of miracle, really. I have to say, with all of we weren't, we agreed to have a post-mortem because that is your choice, you don't have to. We were warned from the beginning we probably wouldn't find a reason for her death. And that was exactly the outcome. No reason. No reason. I mean, I think there is a reason. They just don't know what it is. I think that medical science hasn't evolved to the point that they've researched enough to know everything that goes on inside of the womb. I just think that Tommies are doing amazing research to kind of push for answers because they, they don't take that. They don't take no for an answer. But, yeah, I mean, I, I would imagine there's just a collision of risk factors that just came into play in that moment and... Nothing came back as, you know, a cord accident or placental abruption or, or anything. There was nothing like that. So it's very scary then to try and conceive, for us anyway, before you had an answer because the fear was, well, you know, is it going to happen again? And actually having no answer makes it even more fearful because it's like, well, 
I, I know medical professionals are saying this because they really want to reassure you, but this idea of they say, oh, it's just like lightning. It's like, you know, it doesn't strike the same place twice. You're going to be fine. And I was like, I can't trust that because how can I trust that? It's just, yeah, I, what I want is you to say, well, this was a reason and this is what we're going to do differently this time. Yeah, this is how we will avoid that ever happening yeah. again. And they can't do that. And I know even if there is a cause, they can't necessarily do that. But it's very, very scary going into something where you know a potential outcome and you live with that fear every moment. How did you day. manage... Because like you were saying when you were first pregnant, like there's a natural level of anxiety and fear about what might happen. Yeah. I cannot imagine. How on earth did you get through that pregnancy? With the support of other people who were going through it. I mean, it literally is... And so this is, through your, as well. this is through your dear Orla. So yeah. maybe we should go into that story and then yeah. talk about the support and then... So I set up a blog not long after... Orla died. I look back and I kind of think, I can't remember the moment I decided to do it or, I mean, obviously that time was incredibly hazy. I know that we were wanting to raise some money. We were planning on going away and Andy was going to do a big bike ride. So I just thought, well, this would be a good way to raise some awareness and try and raise some money. And I guess a focus and keeping her memory alive. Absolutely. I look at it now as well as a psychologist. Like psychologists are trained to be very kind of blank canvas. Don't ever give anything of yourself away. And this was just like the complete, it was almost like I'd really sort of just thought, no, screw this. Like, how can I live my life the way that I did before? I need to shout about what I've been going through. I can't keep this quiet. It's something that I guess is very exposing and very raw and emotional. You know, I know this word sometimes isn't appropriate, but to me it feels brave to share that the worst thing that someone can go through to then start sharing that. I do, yeah, I just don't know how and why I did it in some ways because it, it, it probably is a, it's a brave action to do, particularly when you're someone who now I kind of I worry about what colleagues would think about me. I do worry a lot about that. People are going to think oh, one of the really first posts when I found you. It must have been quite early on. Well, you'll know because I'll tell you the post that I saw was when you were questioning why you'd started it and you'd yes, written really these. Early, yeah. yeah, maybe you were like. Just a couple of weeks in or something. I d- it was yeah. It was probably in the first couple of months. Yeah, and you'd, really and you'd written out why you'd started it, and it was like you know to share my story, to keep all his memory alive, to help others. And I remember reading that. And I think I commented, but I wouldn't have been mother kind Zoe. I would have just been Zoe Blasky because I didn't have mother kind then. But I remember commenting saying, you know, you're going to do more good in the world than you ever can imagine right now. I did that post because I needed to hold on to that because I was so I suppose I was just so worried that I felt like potentially by doing this I was just destroying my career for of course like of I course. just thought that there's that real tension isn't there yeah. between oversharing and then having that professional as you're you're yeah. right to say you know hugely boundaried profession boundaried. <laughs> like it's so boundaried that and that you know I sort of I have a different home name to a work name for example so I've sort of desperately tried to cling on to some of that and then part of me thinks but actually does that matter I mean I, my work is kind of I mean, we're sort of digressing anyway, but it's a tension that I've always, I still sort of struggle with. Mm. But anyway, I think for me, it was it was a real sort of game changer in terms of finding other people and realising I wasn't on my own and finding this sort of little tribe of women. Because you set up a WhatsApp group, didn't you? Yeah, so this was sort of a few months down the okay. line. There were a few of us that had found each other who, I don't know, it's, it's a funny world. I guess there's lots of people, as with all social media, there's lots of people out there you kind of connect with, but some people you just really click with and really connect with. Mm. And there was a group of us and I suppose we'd lost all within a few months of each other and 
we've got similar sense of humour and similar sort of, I don't know, just way of approaching things. Yeah, they've just become like a, a little sort of tribe of women who we've just kind of got each other through the last few years, couple of years. And two of that group had babies within a few weeks of me having Esme. So we were going through pregnancy right. after loss at the same time. And that obviously is just a completely different kind of dimension of complication and anxiety. Yeah. And just having them to be able to kind of go, oh my God, am I, am I losing it? Am I going completely nuts here? And then just say, no, you're not, call the midwife or no, it's fine. Yeah, just do have, this. Like, it's that validation that we were saying earlier, definitely, wasn't it? Definitely. With someone that's been through it. And I think, and also just having a midwife as well that was very, very. Did you have a specialised midwife when you were pregnant with Esme? I had the same one. So I was same so one. lucky that I'd. So my midwife is, is awesome and I was really lucky to have her the first time because she's a caseloading midwife mm-hmm. so it's just the same. I yeah. see her for every appointment and she delivered She delivered both girls. Had I not had her with all this pregnancy maybe I would have for Esme's because I did need, I needed a lot more than yeah. kind of average treatment as usual. But yeah, I had her and, and I literally saw her at least fortnightly and then towards the end of the pregnancy where obviously my anxiety kind of really ramped up I would see her when she booked me in for loads of kind of monitoring and things at the hospital so that got me through did you use any of your training as a psychologist did you use any what tools did you put in to get through that nine months I used a lot of stuff at the beginning before I got pregnant to sort of try and like using lots of sort of CBT type strategies yeah. and um, disrupting your thought patterns. Yeah, and just sort of trying to challenge some of those things and then trying to use kind of, I suppose, more problem solving type things. But actually, what I found when it came to pregnancy after loss was about accepting the anxiety and not trying to get rid of it. Because actually, what I was feeling was really normal. Trying to rationalise it. It would have been can't. weirder the other way if you were experiencing. No anxiety. Yeah. That would have almost been. I would have been completely cut off if that was. Yeah, uh, yeah, t- yeah. It would have been. Yeah. yeah, completely shut off. But I think also you can't rationalise that anxiety because ultimately what it all boils down to is, well, if I don't act on this, my baby could die, and I know that that's true because my baby did die. My first baby did die. So, mm. whereas most people would say to you, "Oh, don't be oh, silly. silly!" Like you know, look at all these babies that are born every day. Yeah. Uh, exactly. Whereas for me, I actually did a mindfulness course during that. I pregnancy. wanted to ask you about that which actually was really good. It was very, very helpful. You did the eight-week MSBR. I did, yeah. Which is Mindfulness Stress-Based Reduction. Yep. And it was that was really helpful. I mean, it was great. Like, I love going in and doing these things as a group. I mean, I love yoga, and I love that space that you get and the, the kind of energy you get by doing these things with other people. I really, really appreciated that. And that really helped me because it just helped me to kind of accept all of these really difficult emotions. And be able to kind of go okay well today I'm feeling really anxious I'm feeling really tense this is where I'm feeling it in my body and to kind of notice well why is that like what kind of thoughts am I having that are kind of accompanying that and if it was things like I'm really worried that I don't know the baby's not moving or that whatever it might have been just being able to kind of go okay well that's what you're experiencing what do you need right now to help Mm. with that and actually what I needed was to maybe cancel a couple of things in my diary at work or to have time to sit and just focus on the baby for an hour or it was to go to hospital and you know just be checked over and I think for me it was yeah really trying to open up it was acceptance I think so this is hard this is really hard and 
there is no treatment or intervention that's going to take away how hard this is Mm. so you need to open yourself up to accept that and accept all the help that you can and I found that so helpful and I wish that I'd been able to carry that through to parenting after loss because of that I think that's what I found very difficult since she's been born because it was so focused on pregnancy and getting her here alive yeah and then then you, just, you don't prepare for the fact that okay like she's here so what was it like when you brought Esme home oh my god I mean I was I think shell-shocked is probably the only way that I can describe it because I just didn't believe that that was going to happen. I didn't believe I was going to have a baby that would come out screaming and, I mean, she was grunting and making all sorts of noises. Was that moment when you were birthing her, what was that like? Do you know what? It was really empowering because I desperately wanted a home birth with Orla and I knew Mm. I would never have that because I just wouldn't be able to tolerate the anxiety. And I don't think those caring for me would be able to either. No, you probably, yeah, you probably needed to be. I needed to be. I was strapped to that monitor (laughs) the whole time. But still very mobile. So I think I was able to reclaim. As long as you weren't lying on your back then. Not my back. I mean, towards the end, I think I was kind of propped on my back on the floor when the catering lady came in and brought my dinner and I was crowning. And it was just, (laughs) it's actually quite a comical story. I was using a lot of affirmations, actually, lots of the sort of hypnobirthing things that I'd mm. done before. So, you know, the normal ones that help you cope with you know, contractions and they're not stronger than me because they are me, those sorts of things. Yeah. But also kind of really repeating to myself that other people are looking after you, other people are looking after the baby. And just sort of, I've been on that monitor so much during my pregnancy, I felt like I was an expert in reading the CTG kind of readings. And actually, for me, what was really important was to let go of that. That's not your job. Your job is to breathe. And I had to keep sort of reminding myself of that because it would have been so easy for me to keep going, what's that? Why is that happening? Why is well, it to step, doing that? to step into control and wanting to control it because you felt yeah. so out of control, Absolutely. I'm sure. Absolutely. You know, and that's it. All I could do was control my breathing yeah. and just focusing on what I needed to do and not focusing on other people's jobs because I couldn't do that. And it actually was, I mean, it was an amazing experience. I, my and what, how did Andy cope? Did he have a lot of the same tools as you? Did you? We're really different people. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, that's, probably the, that's probably the kind of most diplomatic thing to say. We're just very different. So he... He doesn't give a lot away in terms of how he's necessarily feeling. And he does come across as quite chilled and laid back. And I'm sure he wasn't. I know he was anxious at times. Mm. But I think he was just quite good at holding in what he was feeling. And um, he was just he was just a very calm presence and mm. didn't interfere, didn't, you know, just did what he needed to do. Had his snack bag with him. He was, <laughs> he was fine, <laughs> as far as I was aware. I mean, I do think dads get very overlooked in this and I can't imagine what it's like feeling so out of control where at least I could kind of go, okay, well, I'm not sure whether I'm feeling movement or I feel a bit weird, I'm going to get help. To be so removed from that and not know what's going on. Did you process your grief in very different ways? I don't think so. I think we were quite similar, I guess. But now when I look back, I didn't really process my grief. I think that was the problem. I didn't and... That's and you talk really, about that now, don't you? So yeah. maybe that would be a good segue into talking about because you've experienced postnatal depression yeah. with me, haven't you? And I think it was partly unprocessed grief because it mm. all happened so quickly. I had Orla and we fell pregnant again. And Yeah, three months is just... I mean, that's no time a at all. blink of an eye, isn't it? Exactly. So and also for the numbness, I imagine, 
to oh, clear, yeah. to process, yeah. would take longer than three months, potentially. No, exactly, exactly. So, you know, sort of three months in, suddenly you're thrown into actually, well, this is my next challenge is to cope with the anxiety so the grief gets pushed away more and more more. and I think for me a lot of my grief is really tied up with guilt and shame and responsibility and all of those things you sort of get pushed away and then I sort of was really focused on Esme's pregnancy that when she arrived all of those things that I was doing to kind of cope with stuff like all the real, like, well, keep busy, keep focused, do this, do that, throw yourself into fundraising, write stuff, do all of these things. Mm. You can't do that when you've got a new baby. And you know, a lot of space, isn't there? So much space. So much space. Like nighttime and daytime. And, yeah, 2am um, is a lonely place. It is, with a refluxy baby yeah. who won't be put down. And suddenly it was just like, it's kind of this really weird polar opposites really like these massive kind of huge emotions but also being very cut off from them so kind of knowing that they're there and sort of feeling them but feeling very disconnected from them disconnected as in you weren't able to feel them in your body or you weren't able to feel them and release them I think all of that I think it was just like I felt the only way I could describe those first few months is that progressively I became heavier and it was a bit like walking through treacle. Right. Every day sort of felt very, very difficult, very hard, very tough and took a lot of effort. And, you know, for example, I would push myself to go and do things like I might sort of travel into town to go and meet some friends. And, and it wasn't until I sort of come home that I'd realised how my stomach was in this massive knot, like agony. You've been holding on the yeah, whole time. The whole yeah, time. I relate to that. And then you come home and suddenly you're like, oh my God, I'm, I'm actually like doubled over in pain. This is so painful. And it was just finding it really hard to try and function as a normal person, a normal mum. I guess for you, at what point, it must have been very confusing because in a way that would be totally expected, wouldn't it, given what you've gone through? So at yeah. what point did you think, actually, maybe this is something I need something to get else. help with? Maybe this is something else? I think... It got progressively more and more challenging. We'd hit like a sort of four month sleep regression. It got really, that was just brutal. It was and, killer. And I think there was one day that we'd, there was a few of us that had all gone out together for lunch and family and friends, and we were walking back. And I ended up being kind of behind by myself, and Andy was with Esme. And I just, in that moment, thought, I just want to carry on walking. I just don't want to go home. I think everyone would be better if I just carried on walking. It would be easier Mm. on everyone. And I just thought, that's not normal. Like, this is not normal motherhood. And I think up until that point, I was like, well, motherhood's hard. Everyone talks about it being really hard. This is just what it is. And actually, that was a point where I thought, this is not normal. I think because I tricked myself into thinking I was fine because I got up every day, I showered, I showered every day. Like, that was one thing I've always, always done, which I think is a miracle. You know, put makeup on, went out, went to classes. So I, I just couldn't believe in myself that there was something really wrong because look what I was doing. Mm, it's that misalignment between the outsides and the insides. Definitely. It was a very odd... And I suppose for me, I kind of reflect on it a lot now that because I work in the much more extreme end of mental health, I forgot that there's a whole spectrum 
Like I just thought, how can I complain because I've not got the difficulties that that person's got that I've worked with before or this person. And of course, that is a symptom of it. Minimising our own yeah. feelings is a symptom of depression or some struggle with... Exactly, and that's what every, like everyone, yeah. like, I'm pretty much every client I've ever seen is like, oh, but there's always, you know, there's so-and-so who's worse than me. It's like, but there's always going to be someone worse, but that yeah. doesn't mean what that you're What right suffering. do I have to my feelings? I hear that a lot. It's, yeah, it's... It is really hard, and I suppose to experience it, like I, I understand when people say that I understand that yeah. now. But I thought, okay, that week I'm gonna I'm gonna go to the GP. I do feel like I need some help. I did go later that week. Felt better that day, and almost cancelled. And thought, no, do you know what? Go. I think it's a good idea. Went really broke down. Said I really, I really am struggling kind of went into psychology mode and sort of saying well I don't really know who's going to be able to help me because I don't think I'll meet threshold for that service because I don't think I'm severe enough for that right. and the chief he was like this is not yeah, your problem so your knowledge sort of, yeah. <laughs> it was, and I think my knowledge had stopped me from seeking help for lots of different reasons the sort of shame and the sort of feeling that well I should know how to fix myself and and all of those things but she was like this is not your job to think about what we'll do is I'll write a letter and they will decide whether you meet their criteria or not let's just see and so she was sent off for referral and a few weeks later a nurse turned up at home I didn't know she was coming because she'd phoned the landline and I never checked the voicemail on there turned up and we had a chat mental health nurse yeah perinatal perinatal okay. yeah she turned up really lovely lady we were chatting away and I think I got a bit tearful and and at some point in that conversation which I just make this makes me feel really tearful as well because I feel like it's a really pivotal moment for me but she just sat there and she said, I think you're depressed. And my immediate reaction was, no, I'm not. I'm definitely not depressed. No. But, and then I think, well, what on earth was I thinking for asking for help? What did I think was wrong? If I didn't think I was depressed, what what did I think was going on? I mean, the, the point was I just wasn't thinking. I was just so... Was it the word? I think it was just this sense that... I suppose it just feels like a big diagnosis I guess it felt like I was being diagnosed with something and as a psychologist you don't really diagnose you sort of you formulate mm. you pull a story together about mm. something so you, and I think I found the label just so it just felt like a very heavy weight mm. in that moment I felt it felt like a huge thing that I couldn't tolerate and I was like, no, no, I don't think I am. I don't think I am. Like, I'm, I'm all right. I'm just quite stressed. It's quite hard. This is hard, isn't it? Parenthood is hard. But, you know, I don't think I'm depressed. And she left and I thought about it. And I thought, you know what? I think I am. I actually do think I am. I needed someone else to say it to me because I couldn't work it out for myself. I guess now I think, well, why should I have worked it out for myself? Because you can't see the wood for the trees when you're in the middle of something. No, you can't see the light when you're down the hole no exactly it's unreasonable to be able to expect yourself yeah and I think that for me it was hard because I saw her and I and I still I have still been seeing her like probably got one or two more appointments before I get discharged but I suppose the difference is that you kind of need that kind of label I guess to be able to be offered a service from them yeah so I get that but then that's actually, the system side of it isn't yeah, it I suppose exactly but then on the flip side I had therapy with a psychologist in that team and we didn't really talk about a diagnosis or a label or anything mm. actually we just talked about what I was going through and so that sort of helped to level it out a bit that you know it's not a case of I have depression I you know I had postnatal depression it was more that 
actually I was in a lot of distress psychological distress because of everything that I'd been through and it's no wonder that it all sort of culminated in something that you can put into under the umbrella of postnatal depression. It's a really good point and I think that will really help people as well that sometimes things need to get labelled to access the help we need to remember that what you're experiencing is just a collection of thoughts and yeah. feelings in that moment. Exactly, exactly. Because, uh, you know, if we think about diagnosis, it is a case of it's a, a group of symptoms and you need, like with depression, it's like nine symptoms and you need five out of the nine. Yeah. And one of them has to be one of the sort of two major ones. And it needs to have been experiencing it persistently over, I think it's over more than two weeks. So you could line up 100 people with depression and they'll all be different. And probably all be feeling that way for totally different reasons. Absolutely. So therefore would need different treatment. Exactly. And, you know, some people it might be, okay, well, they've had like really, really difficult things go on in their lives and some people actually they haven't, but they still are experiencing this because, Mm. you know, particularly postnatal depression motherhood is hard and there might be no risk factors and you still get it and there might be loads of risk factors and you still get it or loads of risk factors and you don't get it exactly it's there's no kind of rhyme or reason and that's what i've really valued with therapy is that we just didn't focus on that specifically it was a case of we just talk through and around everything and process yeah my feelings my thoughts my kind of emotions and how I've been coping and what's helpful and not helpful in terms of coping Mm. I found that yeah that moment that moment will always stick with me I was sat here like on this sofa in this point on the sofa and I'll never forget it I'll never forget having someone say to me this is what I think you're going through and how yeah so how in that moment it's quite validating and also completely terrifying that's wanting to throw it back at her and say no 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 don't yeah. you dare go and write that in my record don't you dare write that down anywhere but now I feel much more accepting of of it and how do you feel now I feel I mean I feel a lot better than I did I feel that I think I'm on the beginning of a path to finding what works for me in terms of my own well-being Mm. I don't think I've ended the therapy within that team because they can only offer a certain amount of sessions um, and I will be discharged from them soon and I feel like they've put me onto a I don't know like a road I guess of not road to recovery but just a road of kind of one discovering who I am and what works and what doesn't because I'm a different person I'm not the person I was before and that's okay but it's a process like I don't think that there's a sort of a beginning and an end it's a whole journey of discovery of you know there will be times where maybe I'm going to be at risk of becoming quite low again Mm. and what can I do to sort of manage that and kind of help with that right now I feel good I feel I feel anxious about going back to work and I think most people would after maternity leave but I think if you're going back after having experienced postnatal depression and being someone who works in mental health that feels quite scary because will it make you approach your patients differently the experience that you've been through I mean I hope that everything that I've been through would make me a better psychologist I mean just having been through I imagine your empathy is going to have gone off yeah. the scale probably and I think also knowing the importance of lived experience so not that I would like I would never use my own personal experience in therapy when I'm the therapist yeah but in the teams that I work in often we do have people who've got lived experience of 
whatever mental health difficulty it is and how important it is for them to connect with other people because the power of that you really experienced that didn't you like you're sharing that that community exactly and whilst i do think that there's something very good about having someone who's separate who hasn't been through it so uh, you know my psychologist as far as i'm aware hadn't been through what i had and that was very helpful that she was kind of just someone who was there to contain what i was going through and help me process it but i needed the other people who'd been through it to say oh yes like that's how I felt yeah, that shared today. experience yeah. so I think for me the importance of helping to facilitate that wherever I work I think is really key you know sort of helping people to find other people who've been through something similar I don't know I mean I think time will tell sort of how it will shape me at work but I hope it will be for good for other people and for myself as well because I'm a chronic overworker oh yeah okay oh like really bad I have very poor boundaries in terms of like myself and looking after myself that's and interesting horrendous. given how boundary do you have to be <laughs> yeah and I think this is an NHS thing as well because yeah, it's a labour of love in yeah. so many ways and you don't work there for the money you don't work there for the status or anything you, know, you literally work there because you love your job and you love mm. what you do and you really want to help mm. people and have so, you thought about self-care plan going back i mean i think in some ways there's obviously external things because i have to be back for childcare. so yeah there's that however yeah, that is quite good for boundaries yeah, i do think that that will help my problem is do I bring my laptop home and then start working once she's in bed and that's where I need to sort of make sure that I'm not doing that mm. often with mental health professionals we're really lucky because we have supervision with someone senior mm. very regularly and mm. for me it's going to be important to talk through that stuff openly and really sort of think about how can I look after myself and and also model that for people in my team because I, so I manage a team of psychologists and it's very, very easy for all of us to be pulled into overworking and how can I lead by example? Yeah. Because I don't think I did before. And also support people in putting in their own boundaries as well because I think that's going to be key for my well-being is to not overstretch. And you've got everything going on with, you know, the blog and the, yeah. the products. So you talk a bit about that. <laughs> <laughs> no, I have to say, like, I'm kind of thinking, oh, where am I going to sort of find time to do all this stuff? And I think it's, I don't blog loads anymore and I'm not on Instagram. I don't post lots on Instagram and I think I've been quite good at sort of, I don't share, like, you wouldn't know what I'm doing day to day on Instagram. Yeah, I'm the same, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. you wouldn't know whether I sort of was doing my washing or gone out shopping. Like, you just wouldn't know that <laughs> stuff. Like, I only really share things that are kind of key to what's important to the blog and for me that feels that's a bit of me sort of trying to sort of think about okay how as a psychologist can I blog how as a psychologist can I share my personal experiences of distress and pain and mental health difficulties and recovery and all of those sorts of things but without it blurring into Mm. something that's much more socially based which is not so your patients don't see you you know getting out of bed that morning but you'll carry on your work with Tommy's. Yes. Yeah, I'm keen to sort of still do stuff with Tommy's, for Tommy's, fundraising. It just feels like it's something that... Because you have reached your 20k yeah, target. we have, yeah. Which is amazing. Congratulations. Thank it's you. unbelievable. Yeah, and no, I'm really pleased with that. I think we... It's a lot of money. It is a lot of if money. If you think about yeah. every single person that has given, you know, that's a lot of money. Yeah, and what a difference that could make yeah. to to someone or you know to something in terms of research 
it's felt like there's always needed to be a project going on. So since all of died, there's always been something that we've been working towards. With Andy, mainly it's something physical, so bike rides mm. and runs. And for me, I mean, I did do a run recently, but up until you then... You did, you're half marathon. Congratulations. I cannot believe, I'm mean, still in shock. I have to look at the photos to I <laughs> believe I actually Well, did I was it. watching the marathon pictures yesterday <laughs> and uh, I was like, I do not know. Like I was watching Bryony Gordon. Yeah. I was yeah. like, I am just in it's amazing and even a half (laughs) like I couldn't even run once around the common honestly well do you know I need to get my I need to get running because that's really good for mental health it's really good but I was like that and then I did couch to 5k and that is that's a game changer a few people have said that to check that one out honestly honestly like the rage I used to get such rage with running because I couldn't run to the end of the road so I'd be and then I'd come back angry I can't run this is ridiculous this is just ridiculous and anyway Couch to 5k, turned it around for me. Top tip. Definitely top tip. (laughs) And you can choose different people to narrate it now. So I listened to Joe Wiley do it when I recently did it. Oh, I'd like that. She's good. Like, I I didn't get angry with her. The original (laughs) woman. You can't get angry at Joe Wiley. You can't, exactly. The original woman probably did, but exactly. Joe Wiley, that's my top tip. (laughs) Like, whispering in your ear. But yeah, there's always been a project. And more recently, because it's hard to get sponsorship because everyone's doing amazing things. So I think, you know, I didn't, I knew that if we wanted to hit targets, I wasn't going to be able to just say, oh, could you sponsor us to do X, Y, and Z? So that's why I came up with like an enamel pin to sell and give all the proceeds to, mm. to Tommy's to charity. And that sort of expanded a bit more. I, I mean, I didn't expect it to kind of explode in the way that it did. I can't remember how many I ordered the first time. It might have been maybe was it 200 I ordered in the first batch I can't remember but they sold out within 12 hours wow and we reached our goal and I was like that's great and I honestly thought I'll just do that that'll reach our target and that's it and then suddenly I'm getting loads of people saying oh I'd really like one are you going to get any more in and and suddenly I was like suddenly you're a shop (laughs) I'm now a shop yeah exactly (laughs) exactly well in Michelle's kitchen I just say there's there is almost like a little shop it's like a little factory with like all these things really defaced (laughs) I'm literally playing shop it's quite nice it's like a it's manageable at the moment you're more than playing I think (laughs) you're you're sort of going big time yeah it's real money it's not it's not monopoly money but that's been that's been I suppose an interesting process because yeah people wanted they wanted more they wanted they'd missed out they wanted one and and I think I was just surprised that something that I'd made or have like had made created I guess that was going to be just about raising money and trying to hit our targets that we needed to for various things that we were doing has become something quite meaningful and something that people want not just because they like it but actually it means something to mm. them to well, it's wear. probably the place that it's come from in you yeah that it that's resonating so, yeah i know i was saying before i just love the way that it transcends lots of different difficulties it's not just baby loss it's people who have bought them saying oh i've just been through treatment for cancer or i've just come out these of are a, the warrior yeah, yeah. The warrior badges yeah. I've just come out of a domestically abusive relationship or I've been experiencing mental health difficulties and all these people saying like I feel like a warrior like I actually this means lots of it's like a little mini fist bump that I've got Mm. that I can wear on my jacket or my pride yeah and I think that's been that's been shocking for me and really heartwarming and actually very overwhelming at times because obviously people share Mm. their stories and people are sharing them more as a peer 
they're not doing it to me as a psychologist so it's kind of a different experience for me because I do feel it a lot more emotionally when people share these things it's just been nice that people have taken from it something personal mm. and alongside that there's some good coming out of it where all the money's going to Tommy. so what's next you said you're going back to work what going are your work yeah comes with more products more sort of things on the dear all page yeah i think i'd like to keep the sort of pins and i've started some key rings with the same design i'd like to keep that sort of ticking along at the moment it's like in bursts like i get stock yesterday like yeah. i've now got sort of 200 orders to pack so I'd like to sort of maybe have that sort of ticking along more rather than it being this kind of burst. Peaks and troughs, yeah. yeah. So, you know, that it's always there and I can just sort of send them out as and when people buy them. So that would be nice to do that. I'm not sure I'll expand on products just yet because I think I need to... I'll settle back into work. Yeah. I'm going back to work in the NHS and I'm actually very excited about that. I do really like my job. I've been in for some keeping in touch days and... Yeah, I do really like my job. I just need to be careful that I don't... How many days are you going back? I'm going back three. Three, okay. Yeah, which is... It's a nice balance. It's a nice amount. It's just trying not to work five days into three. Yeah. That's what I need to, yeah. need to do. And, I mean, I'd like to kind of keep blogging every so often. Like, I'm aware that I'm not going to be as kind of visible online as I once was. Mm. And you start to feel a bit sad about that because, you know, obviously knowing that it's sort of there's algorithms and whatnot that you might not get seen if you're not kind of really active on there but I just think well if people people know where I am if they want to kind of I always think the right people will seek you out because there are a few accounts that I don't see as much of these days but I'll always search them look at them look at what they've been doing because I I genuinely relate resonate want to hear what that person's exactly and that's I think what I feel much more at ease with that now that actually yeah if people want to find what it's I'm much doing. more like mindful we're talking about mindfulness it's a much more mindful way of preaching Instagram that I'm trying to do instead of scrolling mindlessly I'll tend to think like who would I like to hear from today you know and yeah. mine is all about like well-being and you know spirituality and yeah yoga. so I'll tend to look for someone like you know a favorite writer or absolutely and just see what they've been posting that yeah. feels quite different to me than just that like thumbing through and just seeing whatever totally yeah that's exactly it so I think I'm hopeful that I can sort of maintain Mm. because I don't want to lose what I've built up I I feel really proud of Dear Aula and what I've achieved with that but equally it's not my life it's not my whole everything because I have other commitments so I would you know sort of still keep things ticking along but what I'd really like to do is write a bit more mental health type stuff now as well I've done a few things I wanted to talk to you about this because this I I think I wrote you about this because you wrote about this and I don't think we've got time to get into it unfortunately but it'd be good for to reference people to that Mm. blog post because you talked about seeing some worrying examples of sort of pseudo homespun psychology of was it it invalidating what was the phrase that you used people had been asking for help and had really unhelpful experiences of that so it wasn't necessarily about people giving advice right okay it was just more that people had been sharing on instagram yeah their experiences of asking for help whether it's from their gp or whoever okay it being really really unhelpful and me sort of feeling like, oh my goodness, how awful. I wonder if those people know there are other options. Yes. Also feeling like... It's oh your profession, goodness. I guess. Yeah. So, yeah. And actually, it's what I do in my job. Like, I actually, my job is about signposting people and getting right. people into the right service and yeah. training GPs and other professionals. So I just thought, I can't not share because one, these people out there are 
not getting the help that they need and there might be other ways for them and two there might be other people reading that thinking oh my goodness I'm not going to go to my GP because yeah which is very dangerous isn't it yeah because I might have a bad experience and I understand that like, I do get I find that, that heartbreaking because you know a lot of friends have told me the bravery that it takes and you shared about mm. it the bravery it takes to make that appointment to sit oh, in that yeah. chair with sometimes a stranger and say I'm not okay I cannot imagine the devastation if that experience is not handled with i know you know the care and validation it needs to be oh absolutely i think you for me i just know that there are other ways Mm. that people can kind of what's the postcode so people can look it on your website Um, it's help i need somebody or something okay okay so if you if you go to the dear Ola website and I think you scroll down I think you've got a post on your mouth haven't yeah, you yeah I've got a post that saying help oh yeah, that's yeah. probably the easiest yeah, way to find look for that and then have a read because it's a really really great blog that you've done it's more than a blog it's almost like a fact sheet of yeah, you know it is a fact sheet signposting so I would really encourage if you've listened to this conversation and it's made you think about some things that could be a good first place yeah and I'd love to do more of that because yeah. that is what I do at work I mean, I do have some ideas in my head of things I'm that I do have in the pipeline, but I don't want to talk about it now because it's just we'll do another podcast. Yeah, this is yeah, this is kind of probably months down the line, but I yeah have hopes for trying to kind of combine what I've been through kind of personally and also work wise. Mm. It'd be nice to. I suppose what I love about what I've done with Dear Aula and Instagram and and all of these things online is it has opened my eyes to other ways of helping and other ways of people getting support when you've worked in the nhs for a very long time which i have you can become quite blinkered into thinking this is the only way and this has blown that out of the water i mean my current job blew it out of water a bit because i work a lot with the voluntary sector and other you know i don't just signpost into the nhs but this has blown it even more out of the water because i just think that there's just so many different ways to help, to be helped, to... Mm. Power of community and, sounds like something oh you've really goodness. learned about. Totally, yeah, totally. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's what I want to take forward professionally. Mm, exciting. And mm. I always ask the same question at the end, and it's quite a big question, so feel free to take a moment to ponder. <laughs> um, and I want to know if you could gift all the mums... The mums who have been through loss, the mums who have lost early, the mums who have lost late, mm-hmm. all the mums out there, if you could gift them one thing, what would it be? Gosh. I think... I mean, if I could gift anything, if, yeah, I mean, we're talking anything, like, mm. doesn't have to be doesn't a real thing. doesn't have to be real. <laughs> if I could gift anything, then what I would like to be able to do is take away loss... I would like for no other woman to have to go through loss. If that was possible, that would be my gift because it's so all-encompassing and I would never wish it on anyone, so that would be my gift. Mm. Sorry. (laughs) We're both crying. (laughs) That was beautiful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It's been so nice chatting about all sorts of different things. Great, thank you. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Please check out my Instagram where we continue the conversation and I post daily about all things motherhood and wellbeing. Also, if you haven't already, have a look at my website because I've been writing more and more blogs and I'm also putting on there all the events and talks that I'm giving 
And of course, if you haven't, then please do have a listen to some of the other episodes because I'm chatting to some really incredible women that I'd love you to enjoy. And if you did enjoy it, then please, please leave a review on iTunes. It does make a massive difference to the number of mums that we can reach with this content. So thank you very much. Mm -hmm.